This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's programme... Already I've seen more malnourished children in the past three, four months than I've ever seen in Afghanistan. United Nations says that Afghanistan is now on the brink of, quote, a humanitarian catastrophe. Can the international community hold 39 million people hostage to the fact that they do not want to recognize the authorities that are now in place in Kabul and in Afghanistan? Hello and welcome to Inside Geneva. In today's programme, our very first of the new year, we're going to take a look at a country the humanitarian agencies here in Geneva have been working hard in for decades, Afghanistan. The US military worked all day Monday for the final withdrawal. It was one minute before midnight that the last plane took off. The departure of US and NATO troops in the summer swiftly followed by the fall of the Afghan government. But they collapsed like a house of cards. And then the Taliban takeover led to chaos, fear, uncertainty, economic sanctions and now a deepening humanitarian crisis. According to UNICEF, one million children in Afghanistan are now at risk of dying of starvation. Inside the children's hospital in Kabul, the beds were full and rooms quiet. The International Committee of the Red Cross has been in Afghanistan uninterrupted for 40 years. In November, Director of Operations Dominic Steelheart visited and described what he saw as an infuriating man-made catastrophe. When I spoke to him, his anger was still evident. Well, I've seen uh, shocking scenes of uh, malnourished children, especially in that hospital in the south of Afghanistan in Kandahar, where we visited the pediatric ward. And in every bed, there were uh, at least three severely malnourished children with their anguished parents uh, sitting next to them. And these are frankly speaking, pictures that you just don't want to see. And it's just a sign and an illustration of what's currently going on in Afghanistan. This country and its people are at the brink of a very, very serious humanitarian crisis. The ICRC has been in Afghanistan for decades, uninterrupted. This time, when you came away, you actually said, I'm livid. You're furious. At whom? Well, I'm... (laughs) I'm just putting myself in the shoes of any Afghan who has seen nothing else than war and violence in the past uh, four decades. And now the, the international troops have left in August. And it's like, you know, they turned off the generator and threw away the key. And there is simply an economic collapse. The economy is in free fall. It's minus 40% of the GDP since August. There is no cash in the system. Uh, The the second and third largest bank, they have collapsed. Uh, And uh, the Afghans have simply not enough money to put food on the table of their families. And now it's winter, temperatures are freezing, and uh, there is definitely no money to heat their homes. And all of this is, of course, partly because of the serious conflict in the past, especially in the past few years. 
the drought, a very severe drought, but also because the suspension of uh, international aid and the freezing of the assets of the central bank. So, you know, this problem has been seriously exacerbated by the doing of the international community. As her team arrived into the Kabul airport in Afghanistan, we see women and children dodging traffic to beg for cash and men waiting in long lines for free food. Dominic Steelheart's frustration is echoed by other aid workers. Some of our listeners may remember that last summer, just before the Taliban takeover, we devoted a podcast to what the future of Afghanistan might look like without NATO troops. I talked to Vicky Aitken, country director for the International Rescue Committee, and she was worried then about the destabilising effect of the sudden pullout. Five months on, I caught up with her again. The need is just so great in Afghanistan right now. And we're looking at 97% of the population living below the poverty line. Whereas four years ago, we were concerned because the poverty line had risen to around 54%. You know, most of the civil service, which was the biggest employer, not getting paid because all of the assets of the government have been frozen. What few businesses there are, are having a very difficult time getting cash in. And therefore, people that worked with them aren't getting paid uh, or the businesses have fallen apart. So, you know, we're looking at 24 million people that are in food security crisis. And then we're looking at also the public services, health, education, you know, 75% of which was funded by development funding, having that tap turned off. How is this affecting public sector workers, health workers and so on, if they've not been paid since August? How are families coping? Well, it was far before August, actually. They hadn't received their payments, I think, since May Uh, People are coping by eating less, uh, are also several negative coping mechanisms, like you see girls being essentially sold, girls as young as six, seven, eight. You're seeing children being sold into labor. You would also see boys getting sold as well. So there's a there's a number of very negative coping mechanisms that are that are going on. People are doing whatever they can to save the majority of their family. WFP estimates that on average uh, a laborer is getting one day of work a week. But you can't survive on that. Families can't survive. No. No, they can't and and you know, if we aren't able to scale up the humanitarian assistance which again is only a stopgap measure, they need a longer term solution. Then we're looking at potentially up to 9 million people falling into famine. You know, already 1 million children are facing severe acute malnutrition. The hospital had been supported by international aid that was cut off when the Taliban took over. The problem for the international donors who've been propping up Afghanistan's economy is that the money they once channeled through the Western-backed Afghan government could now go through the hands of the Taliban. One of the reasons assets are frozen is the Taliban's treatment of women and girls. Many women have been forced out of their jobs, and of the 4.2 million young Afghans already out of school, 
60% of them are girls. A regime notorious the last time it was in power in the 1990s for its oppression of women and many other violent human rights violations. Islamic extremists, they ruled with an iron fist, banishing women from the workplace, schools and public life executing those who didn't follow their strict laws. I wanted to ask the ICRC's Dominic Steelheart about that. Humanitarian groups have worked with the Taliban for much of the last decade. Even when there was a democratically elected government sitting in Kabul, the Taliban controlled 60 to 70 percent of the country. The thing is, governments, they don't want to keep cash flowing to a government they don't support and don't believe upholds human rights. Yeah, I understand that, Imogen. I I, I fully understand there is a political legitimacy crisis with the de facto uh, authorities. Now, my question is, can the international community hold 39 million people hostage to the fact that they do not want to recognize the authorities that are now in place in Kabul and in Afghanistan? That is my question. And the ICRC has now demonstrated that it is possible to support the provision of essential health services by providing salaries, running costs and medical supplies to 24 hospitals without channeling the money through the ministry. So it is all possible. What is required is a little bit more flexibility, a little bit less risk aversity of some of the main donor governments in order to ensure that essential services can be provided, especially now when it is most needed. Queuing to join another queue behind the barbed wire. To have a chance of seeing their cash, these Afghans all got up at 3 a.m. 3 a.m. the day before, that is. At best, they'll be able to withdraw some 20,000 Afghani, or 200 euros. How are your delegates finding it to work now in Afghanistan? Is everything going just as normal as it was before August? You'll be able to, to do exactly the same things? Well, I would say we can do uh, even more because we have significantly uh, now, we are expanding our operations. We have more people on the ground. We have now really embarked on that hospital support initiative, which is an initiative at scale, which is also unprecedented for us because normally we would rather have our own doctors and nurses in a few hospitals. Now we are supporting public health hospitals with salaries, with running costs and with medical supplies to maintain very essential health services to continue. You know, these are 24 hospitals with 8,700 staff that are providing 750,000 consultations each and every month. That's unprecedented, isn't it, for the International Committee of the Red Cross to be basically paying to support a health service? It is unprecedented, yes. We decided to take that unprecedented step because we are facing an unprecedented uh, situation where 550,000 non-security public sector workers 
have not seen a single salary since the months of August. And if we want to save Afghanistan and the Afghan population, it is not just by giving money to humanitarian organizations. What is required is a possibility now to support the very system that has actually been built by the international community, the very same donor governments uh, that have been very present in the past 20 years in Afghanistan. The ICRC talks to kind of all sides. We know that you talk to the Taliban on a regular basis throughout this conflict. Are you not telling them, look, come on, you're in charge now, you have to pay your health workers? Well, of course we are talking to everyone and we talk to the de facto authorities right now. and. One of the things that we have negotiated now directly with the Ministry of Health is that we can channel the money that uh, we are now offering to these uh, hospitals to maintain their services directly into these hospitals. But it is an illusion to think that whilst until mid-August, 80% of the public expenditure of Afghanistan have been supported by the international community, that now the government should be able to pay for all of this. And I'm not talking about the police. I'm not talking about the armed forces. I'm talking about the very essential sectors that are providing health, sanitation, and ideally also education, since we are all talking about education, including for girls, it is really important that the teachers, many of which are actually women, are also getting their salaries in order to continue the provision of education, which is hugely important in a country like Afghanistan, in any country. UNICEF is now able to access communities previously off limits. We traveled with them and their government-mandated Taliban escorts to one of those places. So what's emerging here is a far more complex situation than some of our media coverage might suggest. A simple black-and-white goodies-and-baddies narrative is never that close to any reality and clearly won't work for Afghanistan. The economic sanctions have collapsed an already weak economy. The Taliban takeover saw international funds immediately dry up triggering an economic collapse in an already impoverished country, where foreign aid represented 75% of government spending. Millions are facing famine. Aid agencies like the ICRC have taken the unprecedented step of funding public services themselves. Meanwhile, Vicky Aiken of the International Rescue Committee says our preconceptions about Afghanistan's new Taliban rulers may not be entirely accurate. We can continue working. I don't know that I would say easily, but it has never been easy in Afghanistan. So we all went through a period where we thought everything, absolutely everything would change, particularly for women. But as the the new regime put people in place and we had counterparts to talk to, we were able to explain what we do, how we do it, that we need to reach both men and women, and therefore we need to continue to have women on our staff that can reach women in the provinces. And slowly but surely, we were able to negotiate to continue our programs as before and with the same staff as before. And that includes women in leadership roles and women out in the field. Turning to 
the funding now. We know that certain taps of funding have been switched off for Afghanistan. You can understand it, though, can't you, that governments don't want to be channeling hard cash through the hands of a government, the Taliban, that they really have such grave misgivings about. Then don't. I mean, right now, the the Taliban isn't saying you have to channel that money through us. There are many solutions that people have been discussing where, for example, channeling the fund to UNICEF so they can directly pay teachers, working through, say, WHO to pay clinic staff or, you know, a consortium of NGOs to directly deliver certain services while they continue the political process and engagement with the new government and and talk about conditions under which they can provide longer term aid. But right now, this government isn't asking them or saying that your only option is to give the money directly to us. Tell me about your day to day work in the last month or so. Sure. It's actually been quite energizing because we can go places now that we weren't able to go before. So we can travel by road to neighboring provinces or further. We can go to districts where we hadn't been able to go to before. We can ensure now that we're we're addressing the needs of those who are most in need, um, regardless of where they're located. Uh, Everywhere that we have gone, We have met with the authorities and have been welcomed to deliver services. So you hear a lot about girls not being able to go to school. Part of that is that the government just doesn't have the resources to open these schools. Part of it is that in some provinces, they're very conservative and they haven't had that many secondary schools to start with. We have been asked time and again to help deliver education to girls by the authorities, to pay teachers' salaries. Part of it is also that now you have to have female teachers for girls in secondary classes, and there are a shortage of female teachers. So we we need to be able to train more women to become teachers, and therefore we need to be able to have secondary and tertiary education in order to do that. And, and right now, those types of activities are considered development work. And it's not clear under different sanctions regimes if we're even allowed to do that, let alone get funded for it. The Afghan people cannot suffer a collective punishment because the Taliban misbehave. People should not die of anger in any circumstance. The UN Security Council paved the way for more aid to Afghanistan, unanimously passing a U.S.-sponsored resolution explicitly stating humanitarian assistance and other activities that support basic human needs in Afghanistan are not a violation of international sanctions. Faced with the dire warnings of the aid agencies, the UN Security Council has at last agreed a modest relaxation of sanctions to support what it calls basic human needs. For the ICRC, it's a welcome move, but it doesn't change Dominic Steelhart's view that creative solutions must be found to keep Afghanistan's essential services up and running. 
That means ensuring tens of thousands of public sector workers get paid. We are totally committed more than ever, and that is also why we are and we have significantly expanded our response, why we have taken some unprecedented steps uh, supporting the provision of healthcare, and why we continue to plead to the international community to show a little bit more flexibility in order to support the provision of essential services. That doesn't mean you have to recognize the government of Afghanistan, but the very people who are providing these services are the same people as the ones who did provide these services until mid-August. And it is now really high time to make a step in the right direction in order to ensure that these essential services can continue to be provided. Faced with soaring prices and a dearth of jobs, many in Kabul are selling whatever they have left to put food on the table. Their pots, their pans and even their beds. And as 2022 begins, aid agencies remain very worried. That Security Council resolution is limited in scope. It lasts just one year and it seems to cover only basic humanitarian aid, when in fact development money is what supported public services up until August. Vicky Aitken is torn between hopes and fears for the year ahead. I hope that we'll continue to get the kind of cooperation we have been getting from authorities and that we will be able to deliver things quickly and as needed throughout the country. I fear the liquidity crisis and sanctions could make that impossible. No matter how much aid we deliver, no matter how many food baskets or you know cartons of medicine, we can't have a country of 38 million people entirely dependent on the goods that we bring into the country. It's just impossible to deliver at that scale. So we need solutions that will allow people to work, to have jobs, for clinics to to run, for schools to run. Otherwise, I despair of what I will see because already I've seen more malnourished children in the past three, four months than I've ever seen in Afghanistan. Welcome to the new Afghanistan. Four months after the US withdrawal, the country's collapsing before our eyes, whether or not we choose to see it. The militants who took over are struggling to control a growing ISIS insurgency and a rapidly unfolding humanitarian crisis. Meanwhile, over at the ICRC, Dominic Steelheart believes there's still time to prevent a humanitarian disaster. But he warns, too, that failure to act could have consequences not just for millions of Afghans, although that prospect alone really should be enough to get governments to act, but for all of us. My message here is one of hope because it is possible to avoid a humanitarian disaster in Afghanistan. It is entirely in reach. It is not just yet another of those uh, situations where any amount of money is not going to be enough. It is possible. And what has to happen now very quickly is that salaries start to be paid for 
all the people who work in the non-security sector and who are responsible for essential service provision, for health services, for water, for sanitation, for electricity, for uh, education. And again, we have demonstrated with our hospital support initiative that it is possible to channel that money directly into the pockets of the very people who are providing these services. And that would be a tremendously important start to redress the situation. And if that doesn't happen? Well, I'm afraid if it doesn't happen, the free fall of uh, Afghanistan will continue. We will see death, we will see desperation, and perhaps even worse, we will see uh, the risk of a serious destabilization of the situation in Afghanistan because desperation will be such that groups uh, such as the Islamic State group, they will have no problem recruiting people into their ranks and lead to further destabilization of this country. And that's definitely not in the interest of the Afghan people. And it is also not in the interest of Afghanistan's neighbors. And it's not in the interest of the international community. And on that note, we come to the end of this edition of Inside Geneva. And my mood too, producing this episode, is a mixture of hope and despair. Hope because of the dedicated humanitarian workers and, of course, the Afghan people themselves to creating a better future. But despair that global politics has created once again a potential disaster out of what once were good intentions. My thanks to Dominic Steelhart of the International Committee of the Red Cross and Vicky Aitken of the International Rescue Committee and, of course, to all of you for listening. I'm Imogen Folks. Join us again next time on Inside Geneva. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.